I want to take you right back to the start of that when we we're talking about the different uh, muscle fibers. Mm. And this probably comes up in, well, it does come up in all the forums and stuff. But if you're training and, you know, you've been um, training for a long time for something like a marathon, Mm -hmm. Is it the case that your muscle fibers just become better adapted to that discipline or do you actually have changes in the composition of, of the fibers, you know, in terms of growth and stuff as, as you train? Okay, so there's, it's a good question. There's kind of two answers to that. So mo people have a genetic sort of inbuilt like distribution um most people are about 50 50 between type one and type two you'll get extremes at either end of the spectrum and you'll notice that people who are the extreme they've got way more type one muscle fibers they will be olympic endurance athletes people who are extreme at type 2b will be powerlifters shot putters all of that most people kind of sit in the middle. Your type 2 A fibers, though, so they're the ones that I mentioned earlier that sit in the middle, yeah. they're kind of adaptive. So what will happen is as you do a certain activity, they will shift a little bit further towards type 1 or type 2. Yeah. So let's say you're doing a lot of marathon training, and what will happen is the mitochondrial density of the type 1, sorry, type 2 A fibers will increase, which means that they become more efficient at burning fatty acids for fuel. Yeah. Of course, we've also got, yeah, as you said, you'll get muscular hypertrophy as well, which is just the muscle gets a bit bigger, so it gets a bit stronger, so again, it becomes a little bit more efficient. But that's the main sort of thing that, we'll not, that you'll kind of see. One thing that you can do as well, um, just on, in terms of like adjusting your ability to do these things, is what most runners and most cyclists will know about anyway, which is lact lactual, lactate threshold training. Yeah. So... LT training, we'll call it LT training. So LT training is basically where you will do the, the sport that you do up to the point that you're above your lactate threshold. So lactic acid, as we'll call it colloquially, is building up more and more and more. Then you'll recover, and then you'll do that again, and then you'll recover, and then you'll do that again, and recover. It's just interval training. And what yeah. this does is it means that your body eventually starts to increase that lactate threshold. So yeah. you, you will burn primarily fatty acids at a slightly higher um, percentage of your maximum heart rate. And that is a really important adaptation that you want to bring in if you are looking to do these kinds of activities. Because if you, as I mentioned there, it was sort of 65 to 75%. At some point, you shift to primarily glucose utilization. If you can take that 75% and make it 80%, it means that you can run a lot faster while burning fatty acids exclusively, for, well, almost exclusively for fuel. And that means that you're going to be able to, yeah, you're going to be able to go for a lot longer, a lot faster without hitting the wall. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And that's um, when I'm, you know, training clients, you know, one of the hallmarks is bringing in these so-called tempo runs, which is where you're training around lactic threshold pace and it's um, colloquially known as comfortably hard running but then you also do as you say the, the out now intervals which i call faster repeats and the idea there is you actually get rather than um just being at the threshold you actually um you don't flood it so you're like stiff as hell the next day but you basically get the the, the running muscles to tolerate some of those hydrogen ions, you know, coming into the blood and, and get better at tolerating that. But with marathon running, 
you know, because there's obviously different events like 5K, 10K, marathon, you know, you do them in, in a very uh, sparing and kind of measured way. Because, yeah. you know, it is interesting what you've just said. If, for example, because everybody, you know, still buys in, well, not everybody, but some people buy into this no pain, no gain kind of, you know, philosophy. And if you were just doing like speed work religiously once a week, it's very interesting what you were saying, you know, with the muscle fiber thing, because you'd probably get some unwanted um, little kind of tweaks in your muscle combination in that kind of middle uh, fiber that you wouldn't necessarily want. You wouldn't want to be going too far, shifting too far over into those other fibers when, when a marathon event is primarily endurance, if you see what I mean. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that including one, relatively higher intensity run per week on top of quite a few miles in other sort of zones would be fine. I mean, mm. we could, we come across the opposite thing um, when we're looking at strength athletes because historically strength athletes haven't done any cardio, but it's with the likes of, you've probably heard of this guy called Alex Viada. Yeah. Yeah. So with the likes of Alex Viada, strength athletes are coming across to the idea of, for the listeners that aren't aware, Alex Biada is an ultra marathon runner and a champion powerlifter. So, mm. quite an impressive guy. Um, but along with that, strength athletes have come across to the idea that actually, yeah, you can do cardio and still get strong. Um, but yeah, we come across that problem where guys will do too much cardio, their muscle fiber type will switch slightly towards the endurance side of things. And they'll notice that their sort of peak activity with sort of single heavy lifts mm. will go down a little bit. Um, yeah. so I would imagine, yeah, it would make perfect sense that the same would happen if you were doing, say you're a marathon runner and you're doing four interval training sessions a week and then a yeah. long weekend, you're probably going to notice the same yeah. thing. Because it, it's not just the frequency and you're quite right. If you did it in a measured way, you know, you, you can get these interval training things in. But what, what I'm kind of getting at is, you know, you wouldn't be banging out 100 meter, 200 meter kind of flat out reps. You know, you'd, you'd have to kind of modify it. And what we do with these faster repeats is you're running often between about 5K race pace and even sometimes 10K race pace. So it's, it's you know, it's a different way of approaching intervals, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do a bit of indoor rowing and it's kind of the same. Like, I compete shall we say uh 10k indoor run that, that's that's the maximum amount of cardio that i do um but yeah i wouldn't do 100 meter repeats because it wouldn't have a great deal of carryover to that sport i do a lot of 1000 meter repeats though because yeah that's training these specific training zones that i need to train yeah exactly exactly mark do you want to come in at this point I can do very briefly. I mean, I was about to warmly disagree with, uh, with Tom about his um, um, assertion that you can't, uh, you can't live without carbohydrates um, simply because, well, as you, actually, Tom, you, you answered it anyway. Um, the, as, as you know, your switching point where you, you were talking about 65 and 75% thresholds um, on heart rate that switching point will move as you train. The thing I do want to come back at you with, though, is the different types of fats that people have. Have you noticed if there's any difference between, say, people who consume a lot of animal fats and those who consume a lot of vegetables? 
so there will be somewhat of a difference. Um, if we look at kind of the extreme end of the distribution, saturated fatty acids will tend to be stored in different places to mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, there's also somewhat of an argument that medium chain triglycerides, which are the saturated fatty acids you'll find in plant products like coconut oil, palm oil, um, they are metabolized in a much more similar fashion to glucose. They go through the liver, they get metabolized a bit differently. Um, but to be honest, I haven't seen research, but I'm more than happy for you to tell me if there is some, because that will be interesting, that indicates a performance difference in terms of fatty acid consumption, depending on plant or animal base. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic difference I've seen is, is that as people move through, we go sort of from one extreme to the other, from plant-based to animal-based, there's actually a sweet point for each person that's a mixture of the two. Mm. Um, normally biased towards the animal fat um, intake being sort of a higher, higher animal fat intake is better for most people. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to ask you about is have you noticed that as the body gets um, keto adapted that there is a change in body composition? Um, well, the first thing to sort of bring up on this podcast is as you become keto adapted, again, your lactate threshold increases. Um, so that's something that is definitely worth mentioning because, yeah, again, if you're on ketosis, you're still going to struggle to sprint. But that moderate intensity stuff, again, would probably benefit Ironman ultramarathon. There is, a, there is an argument that the potentially you know, that kind of athlete would benefit from a ketogenic diet. Um, in terms of body composition, there really isn't any provided calories and protein are matched. I mean, that's one thing that I want to say. Um, with the switch between plant-based and animal-based, is protein controlled within those interventions or is there a difference? Because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the endurance athletes that I've spoken to and that I've worked with habitually under-eat protein, as do most people. So as you increase animal fat consumption, generally obviously not all the time but generally you will increase protein intake as well and that can potentially improve performance and body composition just because you're then not breaking down muscle protein and you're potentially building some because we do know that even endurance sport can develop some form of muscle hypertrophy there was a very good study done oh, it might have been two years ago and um, by the NUSI project which was I don't know what it stands for, but it's N-U-S-I. I think it might be, I, I, I'm not even going to guess. Um, but it's a research group run by Gary Taubes. Most people have heard of Gary Taubes. He's yeah. a guy good calories, bad calories. Bad, yeah. um, so he brought together a research group and a protein researcher called Kevin Hall actually ran it. It was a metabolic ward trial. And what they did was they took a group of obese folks and a metabolic ward is essentially like a hospital ward but within that they get the individuals get fed by the researchers so we don't fall into problems whereby they could potentially be misreported often in often in new in nutrition research people will say they eat something and they probably don't so nutrition research is kind of a bit faulty on that on that side but metabolic wards 
they're actually fed by the researchers and you can determine calorie intake, calorie output, all of that. Um, so what they did is they had these people and I think they fed them a baseline diet for about two weeks. So they found out how many calories they actually required to maintain their weight. Then they started the intervention. One group was given a ketogenic diet. The other group was given a high sugar diet. So not just a high carb, high sugar. What they noticed between the groups is the ketogenic diet group immediately lost a ton of weight. But a lot of that weight was glycogen. So that's the muscle's storage of carbohydrate. For every gram of glycogen you store, you store roughly three grams of water within the muscle cell. Um, it depends on the kind of muscle, blah, 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 but it's roughly three grams, three grams. For every gram of carbohydrate, you gain four grams of weight. As you move into a ketogenic diet, obviously, even if you're not exercising, eventually that glucose is being used up. So they lost a lot of weight. As far as fat mass goes, though, there was absolutely no difference between the groups because protein and calories were matched. Now, that study kind of, although it is one study, it does indicate very, very sharply that provided those two things are matched, a ketogenic diet is no better for body composition. However, that is not to say a ketogenic diet serves no function. Um, for people who are, have insulin resistance, for example, there's a good argument that ketogenic diets could potentially be useful. We also have people who just do better on a ketogenic diet. They manage to stick to their calories better, hunger's often re reduced. Um, if you are in a state of ketosis, which is where your body's using primarily fatty acids for fuel, your brain's being fueled by something called ketones, then you'll often be able to not eat for really long periods of time. You won't experience hunger because your body's tapping into fatty acids from your body and your brain's being fueled fine. So you won't get brain fog, which means that something like intermittent fasting becomes a little bit easier. So ketogenic diets can be really good for the point of adherence. Um, but the kind of take home is that they're not a magic bullet and therefore it really does need to be determined on personal preference as to whether it's something that you would really want to approach. I mean, I personally wouldn't want to keep eat a ketogenic diet purely because of food choice. Um, it's a very limiting approach. I mean, obviously it's quite liberating when you can eat as much cheese as you want, but in terms of like, I'm someone, I like oats, I quite like bread, um, I'm fond of pasta, I like black pudding, um, all of these things that can't generally <laughs> die very easily. Um, so you do need to consider that. And also there is that issue, as I mentioned before, if you do need to run a hill, do a sprint finish, you're potentially going to struggle. And um, as the Finney paper indicated that I saw before, that I mentioned before, um, that is held up in the research as well. But yeah, as I've said, if you're not someone who needs to do those things, a ketogenic diet is perfectly able to maintain your performance up to that sort of lactate threshold sort of place. Okay, well, as much as, much as I asked about the different types of fats, what about the different qualities of carbohydrates? Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any difference between the types? For instance, I mean, plain sugar is a sort of a uh, nutritionally devoid um, carbohydrate to sort of some of the more exotic vegetables that you can get, for instance. So... As far as carbohydrate quality goes, there's different ways to answer that question. So, as I mentioned right at the very start, regardless of the carbohydrate you consume, by the time it reaches your blood, it's glucose. It's the same molecule. 
Um, if you consume fructose, that generally doesn't get past the liver. Um, pretty much all fructose consumed just gets absorbed in the liver. There's no meaning found in the rest of the body. Unless you eat truly excessive amounts, then it can cause like, kidney damage and stuff. Um, but that's not going to be an endurance athlete. That's an exactly. over that's an obese person that's been overeating carbohydrate for a very long time. Um, in terms of carbohydrate quality, then we need to look at two different things, which is performance and health. As far as health goes, you're always, always, always better eating a predominantly whole food, high fiber diet. Like that pretty much goes without question. You're going to be getting the micronutrients that you require. So a lot of endurance athletes struggle with immune function. If you're not eating enough micronutrients, you're going to struggle with immune function. Um, if and most micronutrients in the diet come from whole food fat, whole food animal products and whole food vegetables, like they're, they're big, too big bang for your buck things. You can get a little bit of grains and stuff, but if you're eating potatoes, you're going to be getting way more. Um, so there's that. You're also getting all of the fiber that's useful in there. So insoluble fibers really useful for helping stools pass soluble fibers very important for gut health so within your body you've got more bacterial cells than you've got human cells which is quite weird um, and you need to look after them because if the distribution of various different species that live in your gut goes a bit too far the wrong way then you could run into all sorts of problems so from that perspective whole foods are better as far as performance goes Again, whole foods will usually be better because you'll be healthier. However, if you are someone who is running a lot, cycling a lot, swimming a lot, then you've got a very high calorie requirement and you may struggle to get that all from whole foods. So I power lift, I also row. So my average calorie intake a day is about 4,000. If I've got a particularly heavy training cycle coming up, that might go up to 4,500. I couldn't eat that in Whole Foods. I'd feel bloated all the time. I'd feel overly stuffed. So at that point, that's where things like white rice come in because it's very easy to eat a lot of. And then, yeah, that's where you might start looking at things like kid cereal. Kid cereal is an absolute lifesaver. If you need 600 grams of carbs, then like Frosties become very useful because you can stomach a lot of them at once. And provided you're still eating a predominantly whole food diet, if sort of your extra exercise calories come from less ideal sources, then it doesn't really matter because those things don't kind of undo the good that the whole foods have done. The important thing is they'll always have that base of a whole food diet. As well, when we're looking at pre-exercise consumption, if you're having something 20 minutes before you run, that needs to be something that is not going to cause gastric upset. And that usually means it's going to be a liquid form of carbohydrate. Same as if you are running for a very long time, that's where sports gels genuinely come in handy. Um, or Molto, <laughs> as, as, as my athletes tell me all the time. But those, those fast-acting, relatively easy-to-digest carbohydrates get through your stomach a lot faster, they get through your intestine a lot faster, which means that not only do they get to the muscles that require them faster, they don't sit heavy on your stomach. And the last thing you need is nausea while you're training. But yeah, there's, definite, there's definitely going to be a difference between someone who eats a predominantly crap diet, crap, it, we all know what that means, or a predominantly whole food diet, potentially with some hyperpalatable 
easy to consume processed food when the calories are needed. Can I can I chip in here then? Because you've um, hit on something that has concerned me a little bit because I agree with that idea that if your foundation diet is is very healthy and a mix and you're getting all the nutrients, then that's great. And there's a difference between that, which is your background nutrition and what you're having to do, you know, before an intense session, like a long run where, you know, you would be looking at supplementing it with gels to get you, you know, not um, hitting the wall and such like. But where I have had some concerns is this idea of meal replacements, which to me seems to kind of start flirting into the realm of the kind of balanced overall diet. And, yeah, you might prove me wrong with your answer, but it, it seems to me a bit odd to replace, say, you know, a really healthy whole food breakfast with a protein shake or something. Yeah, I mean, the way I kind of approach this is twofold. So if you've got a very high calorie requirement, liquid meals can be very useful, but there are better and worse ways to do it. So if you're just having a protein shake, that's going to be rubbish. But it's also not going to be very high calorie. If you have a protein shake and in there you've blended up a bunch of different fruits, you potentially put like some low flavor vegetables in. So a lot of people put like spinach and stuff into shakes, um, some whole milk or whatever that's got a lot of nutrients in as well. Then, although that is a liquid meal that's based around yeah protein powder, which is refined milk, um, you're still getting a lot of nutrients in there. If you're buying mass gainer shakes or other equivalent protein and carbohydrate drinks then yeah that is where you're straying away from that predominantly whole food diet and that is where yeah that becomes problematic um so that's kind of how i would approach it is like i don't generally recommend meal replacements because a they're overly expensive um and B, yeah the nutrient void you're basically getting calories and macronutrients and very little else yeah some some companies will put a multivitamin in but so if you've got the time if you've Mm. got the stomach then a whole food meal is always going to be the better option regardless of regardless of situation if those two things are true then a whole food meal is the better option because you'll be healthier you'll have more stable energy throughout the day you'll have more stable energy during exercise and you'll generally feel better yeah yeah if you're pushed for time or if you're, I don't know, you've got breakfast now, you need to be in the gym or out on the road in the next 45 minutes, then that's where a liquid meal that sits a little bit lighter on your stomach could potentially be a good option. And then you could just make up for that later in the day if you've missed out on something. But I would always recommend that you make that yourself. Yeah. So do it with a blender as opposed to just getting it out of the bag. Uh, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, we've, this is tremendous value and we've been going for nearly an hour now. So, uh, there was one other topic, um, we were going to cover called metabolic flexibility. Have we kind of covered it a bit already in a roundabout way or? We've pretty much covered it anyway, as far as my understanding goes. Um, metabolic flexibility is basically your body's ability to switch between fuel sources. So your body needs to be able to burn those fatty acids for fuel when it needs to. And that largely comes down in practice to eating a balanced diet. So always making sure that those fuels are available, 
and doing the lactate threshold training that we spoke about earlier. So that is a really useful way to allow your body to, for sake of argument, get better at burning fatty acids when it needs to and burning glucose when it needs to. You'll notice that your metabolic flexibility is getting better because you'll recover a lot faster from your intervals. Um, because you're pushing that lactic, thre lactic threshold up and you're also more able to use fatty acids at the time. Um, that's kind of, so yeah, we, we've kind of covered that already. The ideal situation would be that you're able, especially if you're doing endurance sports, you're able to use fatty acids as much as possible mm. because then those glycogen stores are getting reserved for later use. Exactly. One option that you can use is the idea of train low, compete high. So that is where you're training with periods of low carbohydrate intake. Um, there's a few different approaches you can use to that. Um, one way that's very popular is that you will do some intervals in the evening that will deplete glycogen stores because you're using that high intensity exercise. You don't need to do a lot of them. So three maximum effort 20 second sprints will get rid of enough glycogen in your legs to sort of have this effect. You would then not consume carbohydrates after, after you've trained, go to sleep, get up the next morning and do a long run. You're then doing that run in a glycogen depleted state, which is forcing your body to get used to using those fatty acids for fuel. You would then carb up after that run and then continue. The other way you can do it would be to basically just train fasted. So train fasted, have your carbohydrates after, then don't have any carbohydrates the rest of the day, go to sleep, get up the next day, and then train fasted. The, the general principle here is to have some periods during the week where you're in a low-carbohydrate, glycogen-depleted state, and ideally you would do some training in there. Um, a really interesting sort of thing that's come out of this as well is that athletes have sometimes felt that if they get up in the morning, say they've done the, they've done the first option, they do the sprints on the night, go to bed, get up the next morning, they're going to do a long run. They do that fasted. A lot of athletes have noticed that they often feel a bit fatigued and a little bit sort of ropey. They want to have those carbohydrates. I can't remember the researcher, but there's been a lot of studies done lately with carbohydrate mouth rinsing. So basically what that means is you say take a mouthful of Lucozade, swish it round and then spit it out. So you're not actually sort of replacing that glycogen. You haven't consumed any carbs but performance is measurably increased. And we don't quite know why. Um, one of the sort of theories is that you've got some sort of receptor in your mouth, which makes sense because your mouth produces enzymes that digest carbohydrates, so it would yeah. make sense that it knows when they're there. Um, and they, for want of a better way of saying it, tell your body that you've got carbs. So your body is therefore a little bit more willing to use glycogen stores. So there's a potential there. Um, so to improve metabolic flexibility, have some low carbohydrate periods. Um, you could even do a ketogenic diet for a bunch of your training cycle and then start to carb up ahead of a competition so that you've still got that metabolic flexibility, you've got all the fitness you've developed, but now you've got glycogen to do those sort of last little bits. Okay, that's, that's brilliant stuff. So bringing all of this together then, um, and you know, you, you mentioned um, that uh, you know, you've done a lot of work on strength and conditioning as well. So we can bring that in as, as well, if you like. Have you got any kind of takeaway tips? Um, because we've been talking for nearly an hour and it's fantastic value what we've covered. But how, how would you kind of summarize that for somebody kind of leaving this podcast and trying to put it into practice? 
I've got four big ones. Fantastic. First one, which wasn't mentioned on this podcast, but I've got the opportunity to say, is do not neglect strength training. Um, a lot of endurance athletes do not do any strength training at all. And I'm not saying you need to get in the gym three, four times a week. But if you're doing some form of sort of squat movement, a deadlift-based movement, and other core heavy activities twice a week with some moderate resistance, that is going to make you significantly less likely to come up with all of the injuries that are really prevalent in the endurance training sort of area. So knee injuries, hip injuries often come due to either imbalances or muscular weaknesses, and you don't have to do a lot of strength training to rectify that. So don't neglect that. And there are a million different resources online that you can find to sort of find two-day, very short workouts that will help to sort of reduce your risk of injury and also just improve your overall health. So that's a really good one. Um, I mean, muscular atrophy towards old age called sarcopenia is is, is a major problem. Um, So if you're an elderly runner, it is potentially even more important. Um, The second take-home is the calorie balance, although we only mentioned it briefly, is number one. Like, it doesn't matter what else you do. If you're not eating enough, your performance and your health is going to suffer. So you can use the method that I mentioned earlier, or you could find other methods, but just make sure, for God's sake, that you're eating enough. Because endurance training uses a lot of calories. <laughs> um, the second one is keep, su- sorry, the third one is to keep some carbohydrates in your diet. Even if you are eating a higher fat, lower carb diet, that's fine. But don't sort of go to the extreme because that is going to generally impact on your performance, especially during those higher intensity periods. Um, Even if you are an ultra runner, I would argue that you're better off having some carbohydrate in your diet because you don't run ultra marathons in training. So some of your training is going to be higher intensity than the intensity at which you would compete. And so mm-hmm. carbohydrate is important, but then at the same time, fatty acids are also important. So eat in some kind of balance. People generally will err towards either end, either extreme, but the truth always lies somewhere in the middle and the area in the middle that you sit is going to depend largely on yourself. And then finally on that topic, don't skimp on protein either, because as I've just mentioned, muscle loss is a bitch. Um, and the last one is despite what I've just said do have some low carbohydrate in periods because those low carbohydrate periods are going to potentially improve metabolic flexibility they're going to improve your body's ability to utilize fatty acids for performance and they're going to improve the mitochondrial density of your type 2A fibers which means that yeah you're going to increase your lactic threshold so that's also really useful but they're my four big ones they're fantastic. And I like that phased approach because it complements the different phases, you know, that I set, you know, my runners, you know, when we're, when they're doing marathon training anyway, it's never going to be all marathon specific. You've got to have a foundation and, you know, different, different times of the year. There's a different focus on different uh, speeds and things. So I like that. That's fantastic. We've had fantastic value fantastic. over an hour now. So thank you so much for that. Tom so inevitably people are going to want to find out more so where can we go to find out more about what you and Ben offer yeah so I mean you can find us on the Ben Coomber radio podcast you can just find us on iTunes or also on YouTube Um, and then generally speaking if you want to find my musings or Ben's musings the best places to look are the body type nutrition which is our company we have a Facebook page 
Um, we also have an Instagram. So follow body type nutrition on either of those. We usually post at least one thing per day. Um, I post a blog per week on the body type nutrition blog. And I'm also featured in a few different magazines. So functional, functional, I forget the name of the magazine. <laughs> you're in so many, you're in so many, you forget which one. Yeah. Uh, functional strength and nutrition, I think FSN anyway, yeah. um, I write for them. I also write for lift the bar magazine, lift the bar is a company that's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Um, I'll, or just follow me on my personal page, just Tom Bainbridge, my photos, me pulling a stupid face in aviators. Um, I don't have a professional page, but I do post a lot of musings on there. So brilliant. Yeah, that's where everyone finds it. But, um, yeah, thanks for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really good. Oh, it's been an absolute crack. It's been so much value. It's, you know, when I edit this, I won't be taking much out. It's yeah, thanks for coming on, Tom. It's been wonderful. Not a problem. Not a problem.